0: Here, our real journey began. We looked out upon the Everglades and, innocent enough, they appeared. Miami was 53 miles east-northeast of us as the crow flies, but we were not crows. During two miles of snake-like progress to Alligator Bay, dragging over roots, pulling under branches, smashing an occasional wasp's nest, and striking at impertinent moccasins, we saw more varieties of orchids than I have found in a single locality elsewhere, including specimens colorless and full of color, scentless and filled with odor that made the surrounding air heavy with their fragrance. Our experience was one that meets delay in the Everglades, but not danger. Crossing the Everglades of Florida in a canoe is not an adventure. It is a picnic. Those are snippets from an article entitled Crossing the Everglades in a Powerboat by A.W. Dimick. It was originally published in 1907 in Harper's Magazine. Dimmick is one of those figures that has been lost to history. A.W. Dimmick was born in 1842 and moved to Florida from New York in 1904 along with his son Julian, who was in his 30s. They had worked in finance together for years and had been millionaires, but came down to Marco Island, as so many did, in search of the sunshine. For the next decade or so, the Dimmick patriarch served as the scribe and Julian served as the cameraman. Together, they wrote books, collected stories and photographs, and generally imagined South Florida as a wilderness of its own. It was the early 20th century, and hunting was not the cultivated system that it is today. Dimick hunted gators, dolphins, birds, sea turtles, and snakes. He was more interested in capturing the animals than killing them, attempting to catch them for a zoo or an aquarium. Hunting and conservation were similar concepts in that era where the idea of caring for or honoring a species was through displaying them, bringing them into exhibits, or, frankly, sometimes eating them. Though photography and storytelling became more of A.W.'s passion, he still often wrote about hunting, specifically one story where he tries and fails to hunt a manatee. Regardless of this, the Dimmocks were essential to showcasing a not-so-glamorous facet of South Florida at a time where, if one was coming down, they'd be in search of beautiful beaches and crystal-clear waters. Julian went on to use his photography skills in anthropological studies, traveling with researchers from the American Museum of Natural History to document the lives of the people of the Seminole tribes. These images persist to this day, both in the museum and in the books that they published, including Florida Enchantments, an all-but-forgotten series of stories of their travels. Keep in mind, this was the first decade of the 20th century. Julian Demick was taking photographs, but he wasn't taking them on film. He was capturing images on glass negatives using a massive tripod camera with a black cloth to hide and protect the negatives from sunlight. The Seminole tribe, since its creation in the mid-1700s, has had an exhausting existence. Formed from members of the Creek tribe in the south and various other smaller groups, the Seminoles made a home for themselves in central Florida. When white settlers came in the 1800s, intending to remove them, the Seminoles fought back, engaging in three separate wars, leaving scars all over the state. After years upon years of conflict and many Seminoles being taken out of Florida, the remaining citizens made a home in the most remote parts of South Florida. This was a war strategy at first. The soldiers struggled to get through the thick brush and the fickle tides. The Seminoles put down roots there, and that's where they stayed for decades. This is where they were when the Dimmicks came and began befriending them. They had become active conservationists by then, writing about protecting the wild animals in the south of Florida, and had made many friends with other Seminole people. In 1905, Julian began taking photographs of the people down there. Their clothes, their homes, their habits. In 1910, Julian traveled with anthropologists into Seminole towns and camps, meeting the inhabitants, capturing their faces, traditions, and lives. Looking at these pictures now, in crisp black and white, The grooves on the faces of these historic Floridians captured in amazing detail. It's startling how present it all is. How current. The Dimmicks, without even knowing it, were cataloging a Florida that would not last for much longer. Within a few years of their decade of adventure, the water in the Everglades would start to be drained, redirected, and levied off. The Seminoles lived in the Everglades and the Big Cypress Swamp for decades, making a new home there. Whether the Dimmicks intended it or not, their work cracked open the Everglades to the greater world, removing the mystery and the danger. This was the new land of opportunity. Thirty years after the Dimmicks left Florida in the exact same area that they had been exploring, a group of engineers poked a hole in the ground. And for the first time in Florida's history, they found oil. I'm Nick Delisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This week, the next part of the ongoing series, Oil and the Everglades. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would highly recommend you go back and check it out so that you're all caught up on the story so far. You may be a little lost without it. Now, part two The Pocket. As near as I can tell, the idea of a quote-unquote pocket is non-existent in other conversations about oil well drilling anywhere else in the world. It's often used in articles or research to describe little pockets of oil underground, but that is not what we are talking about here. The pocket, in our case, is a term used by the First District Court of Appeals in Florida to describe the area in which Cantor Real Estate plans to build an exploratory oil well. The land fits several different qualifications, in that it has a decent likelihood of having oil underneath, about a 23% chance. Apparently, the land around it has already been quote-unquote environmentally degraded enough so that drilling wouldn't affect it. Lastly, Cantor has taken effort so that there will be no additional pollution like runoff from their construction. These factors have made this land unique, thus, a pocket. For the rest of this episode, when I refer to something as a pocket, I'm referring to this definition a perfect confluence of things, of history, that link up in a stunning way to create the present. 65 million years ago, during the Cretaceous period, Florida was underwater. Our northern neighbors, Georgia and Alabama, were likely under the sea level with us. During this time, limestone was forming underneath the water, creating the bedrock of the peninsula the compression and the formations piled up and created deep pockets of oil underneath our surface that wouldn't be pulled out until the 40s. America had been cracking through the surface for oil for nearly a century by then. George Bissell and Edwin L. Drake had successfully found oil under Pennsylvania using a drill in August of 1859. The Civil War saw oil production spreading over much of the northeast of the country and by the turn of the century, everyone wanted to get in on the industry. Pensacola, Florida, was first, with an unsuccessful drill puncturing our crust in 1901. Twenty years passed with more and more attempts near the panhandle and continuous dry spells. The 1920s rolled in. Enter Baron Collier, a titan of early Florida. He spent the early part of that decade buying up land in chunks until the final total was near 1.3 million acres of South Florida land including part of what would become the Big Cypress National Preserve. He built the Tamiami Trail, the massive roadway that makes South Florida accessible and carved straight through the middle of the swamps. He finished that in 1928. Collier was an industry man through and through, who built his fortune through other works, then used that money to launch several projects in the same spot, one after another. So when he finished the trail, he leased land to the Gulf Oil Company in order to finally find oil in our state. With 80 unsuccessful drills and a full decade of failures behind them, the state government was starting to get desperate. Florida, it seemed, couldn't grow on agriculture and tourism alone, as funny as that may seem now. We hadn't hit our major population increase yet, and oil seemed to be working for everyone else, why not us? So, they offered a $50,000 bounty to whoever could find it first. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $900,000 in 2019 cash. More and more companies ran to the tip of our peninsula and began digging, still finding nothing. Collier's confidence, however, was unshakable. When asked how he was so certain that there was oil under his land, he said, quote, I can smell it. He was right. He had faith in his pocket and it paid off. Steam trains needed to replenish water and one such place to do so on the Atlantic Coastline Railroad was called Suniland, S-U-N-N-I-L-A-N-D. On September 26, 1943, 11,000 feet below the surface of the earth, the well struck oil in Suniland and became the first in Florida. It wasn't the most prosperous well in the world, but it was oil, and the company, called the Humble Oil and Refining Company, made history. A decade later, more wells started sprouting up, nearing a dozen, pulling half a million barrels every year. At its peak in 1977, 14,000 barrels per day were being pulled from the Sunland trend, the formation of oil-producing land that starts deep below Fort Myers and runs until it's deep in the Everglades. To reach this trend, you have to drill through several layers of aquifer, saltwater, limestone, and more until you eventually reach the oil over two miles below the surface of the earth. Cantor Real Estate's proposed exploratory oil well sits comfortably over that Suniland oil trend at its very bottom edge. A few miles east of that is the city of Miramar, where an outspoken mayor swore he would fight the oil well right when construction was approved. I went to Miramar last month in order to speak with a member of the city government. I was lucky to have met several kind employees who gave me information about the town and its residents. I'd never heard of Miramar until I began research for this trip. I discovered that it is an unusual little city. Most cities expand over time, trying to build up and extend their presence. Miramar, however, owns its position as one of Miami's western borders and has essentially been in the same spot without expansion since 1955. On their website, they refer to themselves as, quote, a leader in South Florida in development of effective land use controls, end quote. They also note that their land development is unique in that two-thirds of the land that is owned by Miramar is undeveloped acreage. The city is proud of their identity, this little community at the edge of the swamp. No one is more proud of Miramar, it seems, than their mayor, Wayne Messam, who has served in some position in the city government since 2011. He won the race for mayor in 2015 and recently won re-election just a few weeks ago. He won with 86% of the votes. When he first came to be the mayor in 2015, he unseated a 16-year incumbent and was the first black mayor of the city. Messam himself is a first-generation American born of Jamaican parents in South Bay, Florida. Messam has a long history before his role in the city. He went to Florida State University on a football scholarship where he played wide receiver for their football team. In 1993, he was on the team when they won the national championship. After graduation, he headed up a quote, environmentally friendly infrastructure project organization end quote, called Asset Builders. Messam is just 44. And has a long history of accomplishments behind him. On March 13th, almost two weeks after the first episode in this series, Wayne Messam announced that he was opening an exploratory committee to consider running to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States of America. Yesterday, March 28th, he officially announced that he was running. Wayne Messam was trending on Twitter within an hour. Imagine you're me, a moment. I had never heard of Miramar until about two months ago. Three weeks ago, I get an email from the mayor's assistant asking for availability and some information about my little show. We have a great conversation, but scheduling is hard and I knew they had an election coming up. I'm referring to the mayoral election. I figured I'd wait a few weeks and get back to them. The story is being told in parts over months, so I had a little time until the race for mayor was over. He wins the election on the 12th and announces the exploratory bid for the president on the 13th. What? That, my friends, is a pocket if I've ever heard one. For the third episode of this story, I intend to find myself in someone's office in Miramar with a microphone and a dozen questions. Until then, I'll marvel at my luck. I have no idea how I got so lucky. After that first episode aired, I received a kind message from another Florida podcaster, Misty Little from the Orange Blaze podcast. It's a wonderful show about the Florida Trail and Florida hikers. Her message pointed out that oil well drilling in the Big Cypress National Preserve was built into its history. Though the phrasing on their website may be interpreted as prideful as I interpreted it, the rules are what the rules are, and national parks have different limitations from national preserves. You can hunt, for example, in preserves. However, it's especially hard when we're talking about this region of Florida. If you look at a map from above, the Everglades National Park, the Big Cypress National Preserve, the Fakahatchee Strand State Preserve, the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, and the Everglades and Francis S. Taylor Wildlife Management Area run together. It's all just green on the map. Technically, before draining and levying, they were all part of the same basin in different parts, and in many spots, they still are. Those lands have borders that mean different things in a governmental sense and have different regulations and systems that watch over them. That is clear. But when I'm talking about the Everglades, that definition doesn't just fit into one box. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas considered the entire stretch from the Kissimmee River down to Lake Okeechobee and through the Everglades out to the ocean to be one singular water system. So when I'm talking about the Everglades, I'm working under Marjorie's definition. But Big Cypress is different. For one thing, it's at a higher elevation, just a foot or two, but it's enough. It's a bit drier in parts of the Big Cypress because of this, but there is almost no man-made water drainage into the preserve. The Everglades receives water that is controlled toward it through canals by municipal systems, but Big Cypress is almost entirely natural, almost 97% coming from rain. This leads to the major significant difference between the Everglades and the Big Cypress National Preserve. The Big Cypress is a healthy ecosystem. Right now, The Everglades is not. Big Cypress is surrounded on all sides by other refuges or even human reservations, so development is generally kept out. Miami borders the Everglades. Miami's basically in the Everglades. Big Cypress is contained. Back in 1968, the Big Cypress National Preserve had nothing keeping it safe. It was just Big Cypress Swamp, and it was populated by the Seminole and Miccosukee Indians. A jet port on the land was threatening to take up a massive swath of land, dump pollutants into the water, and direct massive traffic into the land. A huge development was clearing out timber in order to build a community called Golden Gate Estates. Then, there was the Bear Island Oil Field, which was pumping out oil, and other drills were being prepared thanks to the success of Bear Island. Chief Buffalo Tiger of the Miccosukee Indians, on the day that they started building the jet port, said, quote, Indians have always given way, moving away from progress in search of peace and quiet, but now there was no place to go." End quote. Conservationists and local politicians rallied, fighting in Congress to protect this land and establish it as something new, something that had not existed before. A preserve. Not a park, not a monument, but a preserve. This place had people living in it, ecological value, and provided water via its watershed to the Everglades and Collier County. Florida raised $40 million for the preserve, and with the help of Congress, a bill was passed to create the preserve, the first in the country. Between the filing of the bill and the passage of it, there was a shift in the presidency. When it was filed, it was sent to President Nixon. When it was made final, it was done so by President Ford. Who knows if Nixon would have moved it forward, but that little historical pocket is one that signifies just how lucky Big Cypress is. On October 11th, 1974, the Big Cypress National Preserve was born. A few days after the mayor announces his bid for the presidency, the oil drill gains another victory. See, the original application by Cantor Real Estate was shot down by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection primarily citing that drilling through the aquifers below ground would be massively detrimental to the ecosystem. This turned out to be an imperfect strategy as they failed to address the much more bubbling problems on the surface. Regardless, Cantor was turned down. They bring it to an appellate court where three judges overturned the first ruling now allowing Cantor to build. Then on Monday, March 18th, the state of Florida and that state with a capital S requested that the court rehear the case. The court refused, but then recounted their order, saying it was, quote, issued in error, end quote, likely meaning that they had rushed it. There was hope for one day until the very next day, March 19th, when the same court refused yet again. It is absolutely insane, honestly, to see these things flitting back and forth with nothing really moving forward or being finalized. The court was requested to send the case to a larger district court or even to the state's Supreme Court. They refused, however, saying it was a, quote, question of great public importance, end quote. Isn't it a little startling that we have state judges that don't consider environmental protection to be a matter of great public importance? I digress. This oil well is not just happening right now. It is happening 100 years ago when the Dimmicks brought their old tripod camera into Seminole villages and met the people there on their terms, capturing their realities. It is happening a few decades later when Collier could smell the oil and first started drilling holes in soon to be protected land. It is happening in the 1970s when development threatened to take away something that we didn't even know was at risk. It's happening in the future as well with Mayor Wayne Messam setting his sights on 2020. And the future, of course, is really what we're talking about here. Back when Julian Dimick was photographing people in South Florida, he had no idea that in a few years after his father passed, he deeply hated his photography and never took another professional picture for the rest of his life. Back when Collier employed the Texas-based company Humble Oil and Refinery and they found that first oil in Florida, he had no idea that Humble Oil would eventually become Exxon Mobil, and they would dump 11 million gallons of that crude oil into the Prince William Sound in Alaska in 1989. Back when I first visited Miramar in search of a friendly outspoken mayor, I had no idea that weeks later he'd be in the national news as he began a race for the highest office in the land. With all that in mind, I leave you this week with one question. The Big Cypress is healthy. The Everglades are sick. Part of why the Cantor oil well in the Everglades was approved was because there were already two oil fields running inside of the Big Cypress National Preserve. Are we willing to risk the health of our greater ecosystem, one that is already sick, on a 23% chance that there may be oil underneath the ground? When decades have passed, and we are history, like A.W. and Julian Dimick and Baron Collier and Chief Buffalo Tiger and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Wayne Messam. What will the unknown repercussions of our actions be? It is happening right now. We can't mess this up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, The Floridian Podcast. The third part of this story of Oil in the Everglades will be coming out at the beginning of May. If you like this episode, please consider leaving it a review or a comment below. Also, I am on Twitter and Instagram. Share that you're listening and enjoying the show so that everyone can hear these stories too. The Twitter is at Wait5Minutes and the Instagram is at Wait5MinutesPodcast. You can also email me at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com in case you want to tell me how much you enjoy the show or have an episode topic recommendation. Also, I'm working on an episode for next month about Publix subs and would love your input. If you are a massive fan of Publix subs, shoot me an email or tweet me. I really, really want to hear your opinion. As for this upcoming week, there will be another episode of Tallahassee Tuesday so that we can get back on schedule every first and third Tuesday of every month. Then Friday, I'll tell you the unusual and amazing history of Disney's contemporary resort one of the two hotels that opened alongside the Magic Kingdom back in 1971. I have been waiting for this episode for a very long time, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find their titles below, along with all of the links used in the research as well, and there are a lot of them. That's it for me. You can join me right back here Tuesday for another Tallahassee Tuesday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please... Drink more water and use a reusable water bottle. Ooh, mixing it up. Have a good weekend.